tonight, it's the first time I've ever actually tried to introduce a relative. Um, but my bro older, much, much, much older brother, um, not my oldest brother, but older brother, um, Philip Nielsen is going to be speaking. And my brother Phil is a, in many ways sort of a, an academic jack-of-all-trades in that he studied English at Hillsdale College, my alma mater, um, but then he also studied graduate theology at Sacred Heart Seminary in Detroit. Obviously, he did not become a priest, um, as well as graduate theology at Notre Dame. He has advanced degrees in classical architecture from Notre Dame as well as Texas A&M. And he's taught classes in art and architecture and writing at Baylor University and Texas A&M. He's the previous um, editor of the Sacred Architecture Journal. And he's published on the theology of Hans Urs von Balthasar and Sacred Architecture. He's also published on Mary, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, as well as John Paul II's Theology of the Body, as well as also on classical education in the Middle Ages. So classical education, theology, literature, architecture, put it all together. He currently now lives in Waco, Texas, where his wife is a professor at Baylor University. They have six kids, and Phil also, like I said, he writes extensively, but he's also um, been doing stuff for the Center for Evangelical Catholicism as our director of research, basically writing a whole lot for us. So he happens to be in town because with the lovely academic calendar, they are actually visiting my parents in Charlotte for the month. So anyway, he's, um, the talk he's giving tonight is on C.S. Lewis and in particular education and freedom in the works of C.S. Lewis. And actually, this talk was first delivered this summer at Oxford C.S. Lewis Society. So, um, happy to introduce my brother, Philip. Yeah. It's a little disorienting to have that many words of commendation by TJ. <laughs> more than has happened in the last 35 years. Um, okay, so I'll just start off. Um, in his dystopian fantasy novel, That Hideous Strength, C.S. Lewis describes a college in the fictional University of Edgestow. Lewis insists in the prologue that it is not molded on his own experience. Quote, I have never in any university come across a college like Bracton, end quote. And we may well hope so. By the end of the novel, Bracton College has become a puppet wing of NICE, a state institute whose acronym NICE whitewashes its ruthless eugenics and social engineering. Bracton's lingering regard for sound scholarship proves but a frail bulwark against the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Lewis admits, however, that he has chosen to set his fairy tale in a university as it is <coughs> naturally what I know best, and indeed, as satire of academia, that hideous strength is difficult to surpass. But it is easier to critique an idea of what a university should not be than to construct. Lewis, however, does both. Tonight, I wish to explore a few aspects of the vision of education that Lewis sketches across his writings. It's too easy to forget, perhaps, that although he is best remembered as an author and theologian, Lewis spent the entirety of his adult life as a teacher, and his writings arise in that context. I will be drawing tonight upon two primary resources. 
First, Lewis's own writings that overlap with education, such as God in the Dock and The Abolition of Man. Less well-known are Lewis's essays on the topic, such as his thumbnail sketch of the objective of education in Our English Syllabus, or his essay, The Idea of an English School, with its nod to John Henry's Newman's The Idea of a University. The topic of education, furthermore, springs up in works as diverse as his Oxford History of the English Language in the 16th Century, which explores classical education, to Eustace and Jill's Progressive School Experiment House in the Silver Chair, from Screwtape's method for befuddling his patient's reason to surprised by Joy's details about Lewis's own schooling. <coughs> Secondly, and just as important as his own writings, though, is Lewis's intellectual context, which includes immediate friends like Tolkien. Standing behind them are his friends of one remove. I will take the liberty then of drawing at Wiles upon some of Lewis's indirect teachers, the authors who became his friends or interlocutors, and then his uh, other influences like Plato, Augustine, Chesterton, George MacDonald, and Newman. By weaving together Lewis's insights from these contexts, two principles become apparent. First, education in its core is a gift between persons, not a method, curriculum, or degree per se. I will look first at what this means for the teacher and then for the student. Secondly, Lewis distinguishes between education and learning. Although we often use these words synonymously, for Lewis, learning is the goal of education, when a person no longer needs to be fed by their teacher, but has grown into maturity to learn independently. Learning then fulfills the original gift in the very moment that it surpasses it. For Lewis, the teacher, not the curriculum, stands as the cornerstone of the educational project. The term teacher means more than formal instructor. It includes first the parents during the child's infancy, the infancy which is traditionally up to the age of seven, next the school teachers during youth as well as friends whose roles become increasingly important and to which I will return at the end of my talk. Lewis repeatedly insists about every kind of teacher, quote, none can give to another what he does not possess himself. No generation can bequeath to its successor what it has not got. Or again he writes, as they are, so they will teach, end quote. Like much of what Lewis said, this principle is far from original to himself. Rather, he revives a truth long acknowledged but in danger of neglect, which reoccurs in Plato's Symposium, Aristotle's Roman Law, and his Aristotle, Roman Law, and is rendered explicitly educational by Erasmus, who observes, quote, it cannot be that one that is unlearned himself cannot render another learned, end quote. But what exactly does the teacher give when he gives what he possesses? Is it, as Erasmus suggests, primarily information or data? To an extent, yes. As Newman asserts, in the idea of a university, knowledge that is the end of education. Yet, like Newman, Lewis recognized that information, when studied haphazardly or remembered at random, is not genuine knowledge. Facts must be ordered, data must be arranged, relationships must be discerned for information to become true knowledge. 
And Lewis was acutely aware that factors other than pure reason may influence the arrangement of new data. For example, at the end of the discarded image, Lewis reflects upon the rise and fall of the outmoded form of Darwinism that he had been taught as a young boy. There is no question here of, this is his quote, there is no question here of the old model, creationism, being shattered by the inrush of new phenomenon. The truth would seem to be the reverse, that when changes in the human mind produce a sufficient disrelish of the old model and a sufficient hankering for some new one, phenomena to support that new one will obediently turn up. I do not mean that these new phenomena are illusory. Nature has all sorts of phenomena in stock and can suit many different tastes. In other words, Lewis stresses that a teacher, when he communicates information to students, also edits this information for them and offers them a worldview about this information, a way of regarding evidence and propositions. He offers them, in short, a vision of what is real. This is why you can't change a school by changing the curriculum without changing the teachers. Thus a textbook, even a textbook as profound as something like Aristotle's Ethics or St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, may only with difficulty take root in the soul of students. Now, there's a lot of ways that a teacher conveys his worldview to his students when he teaches. One, for example, that Lewis highlights is through the flippancy of a clever person who treats um, something out of date. Lewis writes, among flippant people, the joke is always assumed to have been made. No one actually makes it. But every serious subject is discussed in a manner which implies that they have already found a ridiculous side to it. If prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a man the finest armor plating against the enemy, God. Um, remember, this is screw tape letters, so it's in the reverse. The enemy, that I know. And it is quite free from the dangers inherent in the other sources of laughter. It is a thousand miles away from joy. It deadens instead of sharpening the intellect, and it excites no affection between those who practice it. In other words, people can dismiss arguments without addressing them simply by the tone that they use to discuss them, a fact that is double true of teachers. Accordingly, Lewis warns, if we are skeptical, we shall teach only skepticism to our pupils. If fools, only folly. If vulgar, only vulgarity. If saints, sanctity. If heroes, heroism. We shall admit that a man who knows no Greek himself cannot teach Greek to, to his students. But it is equally certain that a man whose mind was formed in a period of cynicism and delusion cannot teach hope or fortitude. A society which is predominantly Christian will propagate Christianity through its schools. One which is not, will not. All the ministers of education in the world cannot alter this law. All the teaching must still be done by concrete human individuals, end quote. As Newman believed, heart speaks to heart. That was actually Newman's motto. Lewis propounds a view of education that places persons above large-scale reforms, as well as above the curriculum in level of importance. And... How is, how is it that the teacher has something to give to begin with? Such a question nudges education into theological context. Teachers give what they have, but only because it was first given to them. The teacher does not create the natural world or reason. He does not create knowledge within the child. 
All various, all various teachers, whether they be parent, parents, instructors, or friends, are for Lewis middlemen, as it were. Education participates in what Tolkien called subcreation, a secondary participation in what endures outside and beyond oneself. As Tolkien memorably wrote to Lewis in 1931, quote, man, sub-creator, the refracted light, through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind, we make still by the law in which we're made. Human reason is not independent, but rather participates in the divine reason. As Lewis observes in Mere Christianity, God lends us a little of his reasoning power, and that is how we think. When you teach a child writing, you hold its hand while it forms the letter. That is, form, it forms the letters because you are forming them. We love and reason because God loves and reasons and holds our hand while we do it. End quote. To give and to receive knowledge, then, is to participate in reality and order outside of oneself. And as Lewis suggests above, it is through love or hand-holding that this participation becomes actual. Accordingly, while the teacher gives information and a vision of reality, he also gives himself. Teaching and learning is the gift of self. This principle is the second pillar of Lewis's philosophy of education. The first is a man cannot give what he does not have. The second is he gives himself. Um, and, is, and the second one is the one that fittingly he learned from his dear, if indirect, teacher, George MacDonald. While compelling key passages from MacDonald's writings, Lewis selected the following. Quote, For the real good of every gift is essential, first, that the giver be in the gift. I'll say that again. It's the first gift is essential, first, that the giver be in the gift, as God always is, for he is love. And next, that the receiver know and receive the giver in the gift. Every gift of God is but a harbinger of his greatest and only sufficing gift, that of himself. Fittingly, in The Great Divorce, Lewis makes MacDonald the teacher who can lead him to the mountains of paradise, casting MacDonald as a modern-day Virgil to Dante's pilgrim. In The Four Loves, Lewis unpacks MacDonald's exposition further. Amid Lewis's discussion of the different loves, affection, friendship, eros, and charity, Lewis develops a term called gift love that brings to light some of the hidden implications of education. In gift love, one gives someone something not to gratify oneself, but because, quote, the proper aim of giving is to put the recipient in a state where he no longer needs our gift. For Lewis, it is God himself who paradoxically models gift love, despite the fact that humans are, by definition, unable to do without their creator. God created the human person with freedom, and true teaching and learning imitates that gift love. Accordingly, the true teacher aims to create independent students capable of learning and thinking on their own. Lewis laments the erosion of such gift love in modern education, observing that teachers are, quote, now, not now content to teach a subject, but aim at creating plasticine characters who can simulate orthodox responses and have no taste of their own, 
end quote. A striking scene in J.R.R. Tolkien's Cimmerillion illuminates the contrast between people who are free versus those who are mere echoes of another. Tolkien describes how one of the Valar, the, uh, the Cimmerillion, if you don't know, is the mythology that Tolkien wrote before The Lord of the Rings. And in it, Tolkien describes how one of the Valar, who um, are somewhat akin to angels in his mythology, this one called Aule, grew impatient in waiting for the Creator to create elves and men. Aule was a master craftsman, and in his desire to teach others how to make beautiful things, he descends into his workshop and makes his own race of beings, the first dwarves. However, Aule does not have the, quote, power and authority to give independent will or true being. And so Iluvatar shows him that, quote, the creatures of thy hand and mind can only live can live only by that being moving when thou thinkest to move them, and if thy thought be elsewhere standing idle, is that thy desire? End quote. They are literally the plasticine students that Lewis describes. They are Ali's puppets, not children. However, unlike Morgoth, the fallen Valar of Tolkien's story, who deliberately subverted uh, the creator's music to try to try to make himself the master, Ally repents and answers humbly and truthfully. His words could be the model of Lewis's ideal teacher. As he says, quote, I did not desire such lordship. I desired things other than I am, to love and to teach them, so that they too might perceive the beauty of the earth, which thou hast caused to be, end quote. This, for Tolkien, redeems Ali's presumption. He had indeed wanted things other than he was, and it is this gift love that transforms his act of making. The story turns from tragedy into eucatastrophe, a word that Tolkien made up, the opposite of discatastrophe. When Ali repents and seeks to undo his deed, quote, Then Ali took up a great hammer to smite the dwarves, and he wept. But Iluvatar, the creator, had compassion upon Aule in his desire because of his humility. And the dwarves shrank from the hammer and were afraid. And they bowed down their heads and begged for mercy. And the voice of Iluvatar said to Aule, Thy offer I accepted even as it was made. Dost thou not see that these things have now a life of their own and speak with their own voices? else they would not have flinched from thy blow, nor from any command of thy will. Then Allah cast down his hammer and was glad, and he gave thanks to Elovatar, saying, May Eru bless my work and amend it. Allah's creation of the dwarves was a gift of himself. Remember the Genesis creation account in which Eve is made from Adam's rib, or Ovid's metamorphosis in which Venus transformed Pygmalion's statue into a living woman. For the beauty of gift love of subcreation is that it doesn't seek mere replicas of itself, but the Creator graciously superadds to the act of making more than the human Creator could ever have put into the work. Lewis, like Tolkien, sees the role of the teacher as one who gives the gift of self, but who does not desire such lordship. He seeks rather to help the other to learn and love freely. Thus, Lewis writes, quote, the proper aim of giving is to put the recipient in a state where he no longer needs our gift. 
We feed children in order that they may soon be able to feed themselves. We teach them in order that they may soon not need our teaching. Thus, a heavy task is laid upon this gift love. It must work towards its own abdication. We must aim at making ourselves superfluous. All those of us that are parents know that this is one of the hardest things about parenting. Not only does the successful teacher become superfluous, Lewis goes a step further and declares, quote, we must always be working towards the moment at which our pupils are fit to become our critics and our rivals, end quote. That is, that they have, like the dwarves, now a life of their own and speak with their own voices. The progression of the student from the state of dependence to a state of independence is fundamental to Lewis's philosophy of education and informs the entirety of his method on the nature of the learner. Accordingly, the student himself must develop certain qualities in order to become a free learner. Like the teacher, the learner must disregard himself and his predispositions to participate in the gift of education. For Lewis, education is not a means of self-expression, not an act of construction, not even first and foremost of discovery. Rather, education requires responsive reception. Thus, if giving is the metaphor that Lewis returns to again and again for teaching, the words listening and receiving sketch the core of education from the student's position. This does not mean listening to a lecture, as the wary among us might at first suspect, but rather a deeper openness and self-surrender to reality. As Lewis writes in An Experiment in Criticism, the first demand of any work of any art makes upon us is to surrender, look, listen, receive, get yourself out of the way, end quote. One cannot respond to a book or an argument or a painting or a piece of music without first getting out of the way and receiving what that book or art has to offer on its own terms. Two major temptations may intervene to prevent such a habit of reception. First, of all, there is a danger simply of noise, noise that makes listening impossible. And secondly, that the learning may become a mere hobby. First, let's cover the topic of noise. Lewis frequently speaks of silence and solitude as foundational to his own intellectual development. He recalls in Surprised by Joy, quote, I am a product of long corridors, empty sunlit rooms, upstairs indoor silences, attics explored in solitude, distant noises of gurgling cisterns and pipes, and the noise of wind under the tiles, also of endless books. Not surprisingly, years later at Oxford, Lewis first met his creator in these silences. He writes, you must picture me alone in that room in Maudlin, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him. As Lewis himself observed, quote, walking and talking are two very great pleasures, but it is a mistake to combine them. Our noise blots out the sounds and silences of the outdoor world. It is in silence and solitude, a wise passivity, that persons learn to love, to think, to long. These three habits that incline the heart to its maker. It requires, however, increasing vigilance to protect the, the habit of contemplative reception. Indeed, Lewis declares the lack of silence 
as symptomatic of the modern world. And this is kind of scary if he saw this as a giant problem in his time, how much with constant iPods and earbuds, it's more of a problem now. He observes, quote, we live in fact in a world starved for solitude, silence, and private, and therefore starved for meditation and true friendship, end quote. He goes on to say, there is a crowd of busybodies whose life is devoted to destroying solitude wherever solitude exists, end quote. And so Lewis suggests the growing noise is not just accidental, but actually diabolical. Lewis's screw tape seems to agree with George MacDonald that in heaven all that is not music is silence, and devotes himself to ridding the world of both. Quote, music and silence. No moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of these abominable forces, but all has been occupied by noise, noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and virile. Noise, which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples, and impossible desires, end quote. Practically speaking, the junior tempter puts such noise to good effect. Screwtape narrowly succeeds in protecting his client from the enemy by driving him from the stillness of the library into the real world of the busy, choked streets. This episode is the opposite of Lewis's own experience of God's steady, unrelenting approach alone in his rooms. It is not surprising, then, that nonstop stimuli have entered every stage of education as well. It for, its forms are many. Screwtape's noise is not necessarily the thunder of cannon fire or rock and roll music. Busyness, for example, is one manifestation. Lewis writes, quote, if Augustine or Vaughn, uh, if Augustine or Vaughn or Traherne or Wordsworth should be born in the modern world, the leaders of a youth organization would soon cure him. The overstructured, endless progression of lessons and appointments of the modern child replaced the long, empty halls of Lewis's childhood. As German philosopher Joseph Pieper writes, quote, the greatest menace to our capacity for contemplation is the incessant fabrication of tawdry, empty stimuli which kill the receptivity of the soul, end quote. Meanwhile, on the university level, Lewis laments, Quote, even on those rare occasions when a modern undergraduate is not attending some such society, he is seldom engaged in those solitary walks or walks with a single companion which build the minds of, built the minds of the previous generation. And this, before modern technology made it still easier never to be alone or to be quiet inside or out. Secondly, after noise, there is the danger that a student may look and listen but do so in an artificial way, in a manner that relegates learning to a mere hobby. Lewis always sees an author's ideas as living propositions to be spiritually engaged and argued with, embraced, to be resisted to the degree that they are, or to be resisted to the degree that they are not true. As such, education provides profound opportunity for parents and teachers to guide the passions of students to teach them how to know and to love what is good. Meanwhile, what Lewis called dead and embalming scholarship, such as he criticized in the field of classics, seeks to engage the works, but only to admire and not to engage the works, but only to admire and catalog them from a safe distance. If one pursues knowledge out of curiosity, divorced for too long from the question, but is it true? 
One risks becoming enraptured with one's own possession of knowledge. Education may cease to be an icon disclosing what is real and become instead an idol by means of which we worship ourselves. Thus, Lewis writes, we may come to love knowledge, our knowing, more than the thing known, to delight not in the exercise of our talent, but in fact that they are ours, or even in the reputation they bring us. Every success in the scholar's life increases this danger. If it becomes irresistible, he must give up his scholarly work. The time for plucking out the right eye has arrived. So we have looked at the subject of education for Lewis. For Lewis, education gives the gift of growth. And so, since persons develop in steps or stages, the core principles, furthermore, of education naturally appear differently across those stages. It is in the stage after high school that gift love bears its fruit and that the student becomes a free learner. Thus, for Lewis, there must be concrete changes in the relationship between the teacher and student and the, sub and the subject at the college or when the student graduates from high school and goes into the world. He states it starkly. The university student is essentially a different person from the school pupil. He is not a candidate for humanity. He is, in theory, already human. He is not a patient, nor is, is his tutor an operator who is doing something to him. The student is, or ought to be, a young man who is already beginning to follow learning for its own sake, and who attaches himself to an older student, not precisely to be taught, but to pick up what he can." End quote. And so Lewis draws three distinctions concerning how a person comes to know in lower school versus at the higher level, the university level. First, he believes that schools should be centers of what he calls education, as opposed to universities that provide the opportunity for learning. Second, Lewis believes that schools should have a fixed syllabus set by the instructor. Schools meaning everything before college. Second, uh, should have a fixed syllabus set by the instructors, but that universities should respond more fluidly to the needs and knowledge of students. Hand in hand with this, Lewis thirdly asserts that the, quote, broad liberal arts curriculum should be limited to pre-university study, whereas universities should be places of specialization in different majors. This third point, which he states strongly and repeatedly, makes him somewhat of an outlier to many, particularly American perspectives concerning the role of the university, and opposed to general liberal arts majors such as great books programs. I find this point to be especially amusing since my wife is a professor in a great books program. Such a distinction may seem like a trivial academic quarrel, but is indeed the capstone of Lewis's assertion that gift love aims at the student's freedom, as I hope to show in a few minutes. Lewis repeatedly distinguishes between education and learning. To us, perhaps, learning and education sound synonymous, but Lewis uses these terms to contrast between the sort of activity undertaken for education, which is top-down, and learning, which is centered on the student's own initiative. As Lewis states, the teacher is interested first and foremost with making the student good. In learning, the student, not the teacher, is the catalyst. He asserts, quote, now learning considered in itself has, on my view, no connection at all with education. It is an activity for men that is for beings who have already been humanized by the kneading and molding of the education process. In this way, education describes an act of giving 
while learning describes the student's active quest for the truth. Accordingly, learning is the culmination of the gift love first bestowed in education. Its proper place is the university, where the more mature students, quote, learn along and, under, and underneath an intellectual mentor. Indeed, Lewis describes the university professors not as instructors or teachers, but rather as simply older students whose business is to pursue knowledge. If his business happens to be useful to his junior partner, the junior partner, Lewis dryly observes, is welcome to be present. Lewis's distinction between education and learning from his vision of how the human person becomes like Christ, how he becomes the mini-God that he or she was created to be, the distinction is equally apt in the spiritual life. Screwtape points out what a perilous path that God has devised for people to get to him, in that the holier a Christian gets, the harder it will get. As Screwtape marvels, quote, the enemy wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased with their stumbles, end quote. The transition from education to learning is precisely, precisely the risky experiment of learning to walk on one's own in the life of the mind. The process of learning then, whether supernatural or human, is naturally more perilous in a sense than education. There are far more false starts and dead ends, many enthusiasms mingled with mistakes. But Lewis perceived that frustration and disappointment are part of learning and growing towards maturity. Again, Screwtape warns, uh, God allows his disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lover, lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. And there lies our opportunity. But also remember there lies our danger. If once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much, more, much less dependent on emotion and therefore harder to tempt. If Lewis persistently used the word gift to describe education on, on the teacher's part, or the word listening on the part of the student, the metaphor that Lewis returns to for learning is that of exploration. This metaphor recurs in Lewis's because it captures the two essential requirements of learning, self-initiative and the observation of attractive reality. For learning is not an act of fashioning, let alone self-fashioning, nor is it even discovery in the sense of creating new knowledge per se. Rather, in learning, student explores a world, the student explores a world that already exists independently outside himself and about which he is longing to know. And so, by university, Lewis insists that a student's questions should, be longer, should no longer be, what is good for me, but rather become, what do I want to know? By apprenticing oneself to a field of knowledge, or what Lewis calls attractive reality, a student orients himself to something beyond any one personality, whether his own or that of an instructor or a committee, or even beyond, of the, beyond the scholars that happen to be alive and working on the field at a particular moment. Exploration is, however, perilous. Lewis warns against recurring temptations to sneak education in by the back door, either by a fixed... Oh, I have two blank pages. I hope that doesn't mean... 
It doesn't. Uh, e either by a, uh, setting a fixed syllabus for university students that ignore what they already know, or by creating what he calls a composite school that presents a range of educational highlights across disciplines, regions, and ages. In his address to the English faculty at Oxford, Lewis warns about such a composite arrangement and what it really entails. In reading such a school, therefore, you would not be turned loose on some tract of reality as it is to make what you could of it. You would be getting selections of reality selected for you by elders, something cooked, expurgated, filtered, and generally toned down for your edification. You would still be in the leading, be in the leading strings and might as well have stayed at school. Such leading strings may do us much danger at the later stages of schooling, as they may be necessary at the earlier stages. For by the time a person is 17 or 18, choosing for them is no longer gift love, but rather possessive or infantilizing. In such instances, the education that should give birth to free and independent learners, a kind of propaga propagation, as Lewis calls it, has died stillborn, rather than propagation, and has become merely propaganda. It is to the metaphor of exploration that Lewis again turns to explain why, uh, why it could be mere propaganda. Lewis rhetorically asks if it is better to grow up in a country and to explore every inch of it, but never travel to the greater world beyond, such as Sam Gamgee's knowledge of the Shire, or to globetrot incessantly among the great tourist attractions of the world. He gives the example of geography. If there isn't time to learn in detail all the topography of the planet, one is faced with a decision to learn well about a logically discrete entity such as the island of Great Britain with obvious and deplorable gaps such as Europe. Or one could pick out a few particularly showy features like the Grand Canyon, the Alps, the Amazon. Lewis summarizes the dilemma. There is, of course, an obvious sense in which the specialist is narrower than a man reading a selection of great literature. But is there not a sense in which he is freer? Any balanced course which he could draw up would bear the imprint of cultural ideas much more particularly to an age and a class. The best could only have meant what a committee of four or five dons brought up in a particular tradition happened to think, it be think best. So although specialists are constrained in one way, uh, and, and an example of what he's talking about here is like a liberal arts major versus an English major. And he's saying an English major is a natural tract of reality that you can follow with a history and a pattern. And that a liberal arts major will always be dependent on whoever it was that made the curriculum. Um, once the students have selected the field that that he is particularly fascinated by, Lewis encourages them, in the great rough countryside which we throw up to you, you can choose your own path. Here's your gun, your spade, your fishing tackle, go and get yourself dinner. Don't tell me that you would rather have a nice composite menu of dishes from half the world drawn up for you. You are too old for that. Newman, too, discerned a connection between specialization and freedom and the value of living among those who have specialized differently than oneself. He writes in the idea of a university that those students cannot pursue every subject which is open to them. They will be the gainers by living among those and under those who represent the whole circle. Thus is created a pure and clear atmosphere of thought which the students also breathe, though in 
his own case, he only pursues a few sciences out of the multitude. He profits by an intellectual tradition which is independent of particular teachers. It's inter interesting that Newman uses that exact phrase. It's independent of particular teachers. Specialization, of course, comes with its own dangers, particularly when one becomes oblivious of the soil by which the roots of one's own discipline are nourished. And it is to an unlikely and uninstitutional place that Lewis, like Newman, looks for a counterbalance to such risk. He looks to friendship. For friendship gives opportunities for lively debates among equals, and not one personality predetermining what is worthy to be studied. Lewis contrasts the sort of intellectual exchange that occurs between friends with that of more formal education. He remembers, when I first went to Oxford, the typical undergraduate society consisted of a dozen men who knew one another intimately, hearing a paper by one of their own number in a small sitting room and hammering out their problem till one or two in the morning before the war the typical undergraduate, he means World War I, the typical undergraduate society had come to be a mixed audience of one or two hundred students assembled in a public hall to hear a lecture from some visiting celebrity. Luckily, I'm not a celebrity. The celebrity expert, who is probably giving the same talk he has given a dozen times before, cannot replace the inkling style debate. That is a healthy that a healthy university occurs among students, friends, and teachers. Tolkien gleefully described one such encounter in the meeting of the Inklings. The Inklings were the group that Lewis and Tolkien were in, in a letter to his son Christopher in 1944. C.S. Lewis was highly flown, but he we were also in good metal. While Owen Barfield is the only man who can tackle CSL, making him define everything and interrupting his most dogmatic pronouncements, the result was a most amusing and highly contentious evening on which, had an outsider eavesdropped, he would have thought a meeting of fell enemies hurling de deadly insults. The point is that a group like the Inklings was only possible with a group of friends who had become true learners. It is through friendship that people may meet and challenge each other as free equals. Lewis notes in The Four Loves, in this kind of love, do you love me means do you see the same truth or at least, do you care about the same truth? The man who agrees with us that some question little regarded by others is of great importance can be our friend. He need not agree with us about the answer. Thus, Lewis saw friendship as essential to gaining knowledge itself, above and beyond its companionable or clubbable aspects. It is for similar reasons that John Henry Newman also admitted that if he were forced to choose which is preferable for learning a teacherless group of young people or a top-tier series of lectures, he would choose the students over the lecture. Newman explains, when a multitude of young men, keen, open-hearted, sympathetic, and observant, as young men are, come together and freely mix with each other, they are sure to learn one from another, even if there is no one to teach them. The conversation of all is a series of lectures to each, and they gain for themselves new ideas and views, fresh matter of thought, and distinct principles for judging and acting day by day. It is such friendship that the se it is in such friendship that the seeds are planted by education, um, and they blossom into learning, where heart speaks to heart, and the student himself has something to give as well as receive. What Lewis preached to others in his writing and fought for 
in the administration of the English school at Oxford, he practiced in his vocation as a teacher. Indeed, he wrote to Arthur Greaves, his friend, this is the best part of my job. There is hardly a year in which I do not make some real friend. Thank you. All right. Thank you.